everyone, welcome to Phil's Breakfast Metal, episode 85. In this episode, I'm covering the spellbinding, ingenious, gory and horrifying, the sensational, the intrepid, the ghastly, the hellish, the striking, inventive, ghoulish and harrowing, the masters of black metal from Japan, Sai. I felt it's been a while since I've done a deep dive on a band, um, and... I feel black metal's been a bit underrepresented in the podcast recently, so um, I felt I'd dive into a black metal band with a really extensive catalogue that I, I know pretty well. As always with these episodes, it's not going to be like a perfect history of the band. What I'm doing is taking and reviewing each release in order, and I'll throw in the bits of history I know, but I I won't claim to be be a full expert on that side of things. So if you're totally new to them, Psy are a black metal band that have been around since the, the real dawn of black metal. I mean, they, they formed initially in 1989 under the name Ultra Death and put out their like, first full-length album in 1993. So they're, you know, right in there with, like, the, sort of the first wave of all those, like, Norwegian bands. I mean, well after the true first wave of black metal, but definitely well in the second. And they've always been a band who have kept a fantastically unique sound throughout their career. They're, each of their albums is a kind of clever uh, evolution from the last day. So they're up to 12 albums now. They haven't really had any kind of like hiatus in that time. They're always constantly putting out new music and never really put out two albums that sound sound identical. So I think this would be a really fun one to... Um, to sort of dissect those arms at length. Also, I get the impression you guys prefer the episodes run a bit shorter, so if this starts crossing the hour and a half mark, I might well split it up into two parts. But I'm going to throw in some sort of extra unrelated stuff uh, at the end of each half, so so there's something to focus on there, even if you're not the biggest um, avant-garde black metal fan out there. Or so I started life in 1989 as Ultra Death, but never recorded anything under that name. And in 1990, changed the name to Psy and put out two demo tapes with the the lineup of um, uh, sort of vocalist and bass player uh, Mirai Kawashima, um, guitarist Satoshi Fujinami, and short-lived drummer Kazuki. Um, these first two demos they put out in 1990 not really worthy of comment. I think, you may know, I, I have a cut-off on how raw I can deal with my demos, and both of these are, are that kind of thing of they are so incredibly rough and ready. This is going sort of a step beyond the kind of mayhem death crush kind of sound. Um, so nothing too noteworthy at that point, sort of completest fans only. But the first sort of really interesting release they put out is the short EP um, Requiem for Fools in 1992. So already at this point, the band has slimmed down to a two-piece. Uh, Kazuki didn't make it from the the initial demos for this this first proper recording, and showing off the kind of level of multi-instrumentalist uh, nature of the two key members of the band. Um, Mirai is credited on this with vocals, bass, keyboards, piano, and ocarina. Satoshi is credited with guitars, drums, and triangle. Um, both these members are like will be in the band for the rest of this, and uh, Satoshi uh, switches between many instruments over over sort of his time with the band, whereas Mirai is 
sort of always the front man but seemingly kind of the primary composer and we will see like from their early live pitches he's very much the vocalist and bass player um as the band go on his kind of keyboard work becomes more and more of a thing and his kind of skill in that regard I don't know how much like it improves whether he had it as an incredible skill level but it it certainly gets more showy as time goes on but what we're looking at here with this um this EP is very much sits in the category of like you can see like much of that Norwegian wave of bands especially their earlier releases there's an incredibly heavy influence on their sound from Celtic Frost and Venom um and Sai have always been obsessed with Venom this is something that will keep coming up throughout this uh throughout this like kind of look through their discography but they cover Venom all the time as a live band. Mariah's often talked about being amazed that anyone would want to hear them do anything other than just play all the Venom covers. And they've put out multiple live and studio recording of Venom covers over the years. So there's a lot of that in their sound. But also there's kind of a kind of slower, doomier aspect to this stuff as well. And especially with um, the the massive layering of keyboards over the top of um of the sound there's this kind of real cinematic quality to their music even from this this super early rough kind of period um this first demo is still incredibly raw but it's at the point where it actually sounds good it's you know the the production is is pretty kind of muddy in that but it, it still sounds great um most of the tracks from this like so it's a free track ep two of them would end up on the scorn defeat album in slightly different versions and then we get uh track two desolation of the mind or desolation of my mind which is kind of in the same vein but just not quite as good as the other two tracks saying it's uh come together on this album that would oh this ep i should say that would stick to the band from then on is more so than anything else, they found their excellent logo already. Their kind of very stylish, stylistic writing of the word Psy. Um, it's cool as the logo looks. The album cover is fucking incredible. Uh, much like that kind of Dark Throne sort of photography of the era. It's a black and white photo of a band member holding a crucifix. Now, if you've not seen the cover of this before, you're picturing something probably a lot cooler than what actually is taking place here. The um, uh, the cover is Satoshi wearing a kind of skeleton Halloween mask in a robe, standing in a hedgerow with a giant crucifix, looking like he's about to fall over. And it is truly hilarious. It, it looks like a parody of, of a black metal photo. So I would get much better at their band photography and images over the years, but if you if you go through their Facebook um, back in like sort of 2015, 2016, Mariah shared a load of of great outtake photos from their their early sessions. Uh, Satoshi regularly having really real troubles with getting the corpse paint looking right, and there's a there's a great series of amazingly dodgy images in in that that kind of era all of kind of like venom worship and kind of lo-fi production we have in this um this debut ep what there is a kind of element of size sound taking 
form here which is the the kind of level of layering of instruments so although like the riffs are quite kind of simplistic and nothing's massively technical in this we are already seeing that thing of Mariah layering tons of different keyboard tracks together or like two or three in this case but enough to create quite a soundscape over the music which which I feel is relatively rare in this this kind of era of black metal I guess we were seeing sort of around this same time emperor doing similar but often ishan's keyboards will be more simplistic uh in places because they're being layered over blast beats so they need to be kind of one quite clear distinct melody to cut through whereas satoshi never the fastest drummer and why he probably switched roles in later times of size so there's a bit more space to experiment with having like lots of different melody lines going on at once and that's the like the initial really striking thing about this as well as like these are just really well written songs you can see why tracks like the knell are still something that is part of size kind of live repertoire even now albeit with a certain degree of rewriting from this initial early version. So this brings us neatly along to 1993's debut album, Scorn Defeat. The lineup has now been rounded out by guitarist uh, Sinichi Ishikawa, who um, sort of, so I guess, like, fills out the sound because we've now got Mirai doing vocals, bass, and keyboards, Satoshi doing drums, and Sinichi doing guitar. So we've now got a full live lineup. Uh, Obviously, I, I think in those early days, they just wouldn't play the keyboard parts live. But this album very much makes use of uh, multiple layering still. So for many fans of Psy, this is the pinnacle. This is this is kind of their absolute peak. And I can understand it because this album sounds nothing like any other Psy album. You can tell it's the same band, I guess. You can see the evolution. But they're a different band on this album to what they would be on even uh, the follow-up Infidel Art. So much like with that debut, this is this is an album that goes back and forth between some interesting progressive leanings and some more kind of classic like Celtic Frost worship sections. Put out on a uh, Deflect Silence Productions, I believe uh, Euronymous is is label, which uh, unsurprisingly would would pick up a band like Sai, who are bringing a certain level of of evil from japan like which was quite different to say how a lot of the norwegian bands were approaching it, or even how like say some of the south american bands are approaching it something i think that weren't very much in their favor in the early days is if you look back through some of those older sort of side band photos is uh mirai got very proficient at doing fire breathing and there's a lot of early like photo shoots the ones that didn't go totally wrong where they're doing a lot of cool stuff with fire and so on Although overall their look is a bit all over the place, uh, Mirai regularly sporting uh, kind of cloak and hood, and clearly quite a small guy as well. It just it doesn't quite have the imposing level, but he definitely has the black metal pretentiousness going on. And as I say, the the fire stuff was a really neat trick. The um, I should say actually with this era of Psy, so I got really into the band sort of about seven or eight years ago and sort of have been working back through their stuff and ahead of this episode they're really early material that i wasn't that familiar with i've obviously heard scorn defeat a few times but it's not an album i'd ever spent like a great deal of time on and anything really pre hail horror hail 
I didn't know, so I've had to look up for this episode. So my reviews are probably going to get a bit more detailed as we get into uh, some of the later albums. But what really struck me about Scorn Defeat is just the incredible contrast on it. So I think the the version I'm reviewing, they, they've done a kind of um, sort of remaster of a lot of their early stuff. It's around 2011, they, they put out a few remasters of, uh, of a lot of those earlier albums. I think um, they got all the first five. Um, I, maybe purists have a massive issue with these reissues. I'm, I'm really not sure where it stands. But the version I've got's got both both versions in. And I, I, honestly, I couldn't, couldn't tell you a massive difference between the, the kind of... The sounds other than one just sounds a bit louder and clearer. So for me, it totally works. But anyway, that's, that's sort of getting off topic. Um... Yeah, what's really striking about this is that kind of um, the two warring factions society being held up in quite such stark contrast on here. So the opening track, uh, Victory for Dakini, um, has this kind of, as I say, this very kind of Venom-esque riffing throughout. But it gets to this sort of like middle section where we have like, and this, this is truly kind of like early extreme metal vibes where there is this complete like, uh, Sicini drops this, uh, Sinichi, sorry, drops this, um, absolutely, like, all over the place, like, half out of tune shred with no backing guitar to just bass and drums. And it's just this utterly intense moment. But as that sort of finishes, the song stops to silence for, like, the briefest seconds and then comes back with the main kind of theme of the song, but with, like, acoustic guitars and beautiful keyboard melodies layered over it. Um, yeah, it's it's really a, this amazing contrast of, like, absolute kind of, you know, slayer worship, like, total kind of raw, messy evilness into this kind of, epic like very as i say cinematic feeling kind of sound like really really interesting how the band are kind of pulling off both uh i should say like vocalist marai found his voice quite early on i've mentioned before i think i brought this up in the last episode there's an interesting thing of where is in norway the sort of the the scream vocal sort of solidified to a general sound i know Bands like Mayhem were doing something quite different with it, but um, there, there was sort of a, I don't know, a, a kind of move towards a midpoint where there's that, that kind of black metal vocal you expect. I, I'd say Marai sits slightly outside of that. You can tell again, as I say, taking influence from the first wave of black metal. He's got this very clear, like, incredibly kind of, like, um, rasping scream. But there's a lot of, like actual voice in it as well there's that that level of like he is even at this point almost singing and we'll see in later albums he does actually have a a solid singing voice um but yeah he's sort of there is there is almost a melody to most of what he's doing vocally but it's still incredibly harsh um and i feel his vocals are often a sticking point for a lot of people they're um they're very attention grabbing. They're they're something that always, when he's doing that kind of scream voice, always comes very front and center in the sound. One of the real highlight tracks for me off um, 
of this album is at my funeral track free which it for me feels like the most kind of like first wave song i think well one of the most kind of first wave black metal songs i've ever done but it's just it's just full of absolutely brilliant riffing and just it's got about four just absolutely fantastic riffs back to back in this really excellent middle section and you got tracks later on like ready for final war that sounds like pure kind of um morbid tales worship like ex- just so following that tom g warrior kind of riff structure which really works it sounds great in the way the sounds recorded it sounds absolutely excellent there's moments where we see kind of some of where Sai gonna go uh i think I believe track four gandali is primarily multiple keyboard passages with Mariah doing this kind of like evil whisper over the top of it and little bits of percussion and guitar in there but it's it's mainly this this kind of interlude track but it's about four minutes long and it's it's quite quite this epic kind of keyboard piece and it it sounds really beautiful but almost somewhat out of place on this but then I guess like this is some like Mariah particularly seemed to very much have his ear to the ground for a lot of that kind of um, experimental death metal, experimental early black metal. So I could totally see with this taking influence from an album like Into Pandemonium by Celtic Frost. I feel I feel like uh, Side do somewhat, somewhat would be the band that are obviously jumping off from that album because that's an album that's never been recreated anyway. No one's really done the the uh, inter-pandemonium worship. Sire the closest I think you could ever get to that. They take it in a different direction, but they have that level of, you know, we're just going to throw every interesting musical idea we've got in there. But that's, like, for this album, that's the one real departure. Mostly this moves back and forth between, as I say, this, that kind of moments like Ready for Final War, which are very kind of um, guitar-heavy and, and aggressive, and then tracks like um, sort of weakness within and the knell, like the re-recording from the from the EP, which while having a lot of that, also have a lot of moments of kind of more melodic, kind of epic keyboard passages over the top of slower riffing. Something that really starts to show with this because it's got a, especially on the remaster, it's got that like kind of quite clear production is uh, Satoshi's drumming does sound a bit messy like he throws in a few blast beats in certain places it's not like that sort of what we'd see in like say the early immortal style where it's blasting start to finish like primarily these songs are slower and more kind of you know kind of more riffy and clear but the section they do blast the blasts are really sloppy they're kind of they do the job but yeah there's the whole drumming just sounds kind of loose on this and it works for the sound, like the whole the whole approach to this album is quite loose. All the musicians are, are good at their job, but it's it's just not that kind of it's it's not that that crisp Norwegian perfection we'd get with stuff like the early Emperor. It's a, it's a far cry from that kind of that kind of style. Although some interesting stuff like uh, Mariah's bass work actually shines for a lot on this um uh, the aforementioned weakness within has a few like nice little uh base fills in places in there which which i really enjoyed and yeah in this kind of short 40 minute or so runtime it's it hasn't got a bad riff in it i can see why people love this album so much it's 
it is such a good follow-on if you you love that stuff like venom and celtic frost and want more of that kind of sound this is a great like slight evolution of the first wave it's um yeah really cool in that sense something that lets it down and um like <laughs> i find it a little difficult to overcome because with black metal aesthetic is such a thing um the uh, the original album cover is so bad it's it's the, the concept's great like uh it's this giant multiple headed sort of uh Japanese demon monster torturing these two souls in the kind of flames of the underworld. But the drawing looks like it's done by like a kind of really bad like newspaper comic artist. The the one tortured soul sort of facing the front of the picture's face is just it's just incredible. It it's like four squiggled lines for the eyes and the mouth and nose. It's so dodgy. And yeah, just uh, the more you look at it, the worse it gets. It is a really, really kind of yeah. I just don't know quite what happened there. Um, yeah, by a Norwegian artist by the name of Anne Anne Brendan. Uh, I'm not not familiar with, but yeah, hardly hardly the best work. Over the years, um, they've given it I think four or five different covers in its time. My personal favourite is there's one from a photo shoot of uh, uh, Sinichi um, wearing kind of leathers, um, bullet belts, uh, holding a samurai sword, standing on like a riverbank with like a skull on a spike next to him in corpse paint with um, his hands set on fire. I think he's wearing some kind of like flame retardant glove and it's yeah it to me like over the kind of smoke and everything it's a it's a kind of sinister if kind of stupid when you think about it um picture you know why does he have a sword and a bullet belt that seems seems at odds but yeah that's that's the cover i've always liked for it as the main cover completely uh <laughs> completely wasted on me i don't get it at all but you like i i've i really enjoyed um I really enjoyed it as a whole, and I can totally appreciate it on that same same level I have with something like Morbid Tales, where I can forgive any flaws in musicianship because none of it detracts from the atmosphere. Um, oh, apparently the remaster was done by Scott Hull. Uh, that that makes a lot of sense. Um, yeah, and I, re I really like that remastered version. I don't know whether that's a a kind of a faux pas of, <laughs> to enjoy or not, but I, I thought it was really good. And for some historical context on this, this this album came out before the first Emperor album, before the first Enslaved, the first Mayhem album. Like, you know, Psy were well and truly contemporaries of, of these bands. I say, though, the releases on Death Like Silence Productions, like, which is why I've always found it weird that I feel Psy are a band that very much get left out of the black metal conversation. And I don't know whether... Some of that is because their later releases were possibly too wacky to ever be considered cult in the way a lot of black metal is. Even if that's true, this album's still really cult and scary. Like, 1983, this this was a this was an intense release. Or I don't know, maybe as I say, there's so many comparisons to the first wave, maybe that's not cool in the same way the second wave is. I don't know, but it it always strikes me as weird that like Sai were right there 
in the middle of it, albeit in a different country. But, you know, they were producing music back and forth and, and putting out at similar rates to these bands, involving at a similar rate to all these bands. And, yeah, I think it's a shame they often get left out. It's so... If you're into your sort of Norwegian black metal a lot, if you love that kind of early scene, make sure you go back and check out Scorn Defeat because right there in the mix, it was clearly having an influence on some of those bands um, as much as those bands were influencing Psy. So, yeah, I think essential part of that period of history. So following this debut, two years later, in 1995, they put out an EP to Hell and Back, Size Tribute to Venom, a six-track EP of Venom covers to show kind of quite how serious they are about this kind of love and worship of the first wave of black metal, as I said before, particularly Venom. Not really that noteworthy, they're quite straight-up covers of a lot of those songs, so we'll move straight on to the, the second uh, full-length album for that same year, 1995, Infidel Art. So... So I kind of want to get on with, with Sai is, in a, in a kind of sense, Scorn Defeat, I can see why it's really popular as like, seen by many as their sort of real masterwork is because it's the one that's most traditionally black metal. But this brings me to a kind of a definition thing of the whole idea of that second way of black metal or, or a big part of the idea was this kind of... Um, 
reaction against death metal, this sort of death metal had become taken over by jocks and had become a bit trendy, so people wanted to make this sort of out there, inaccessible, more kind of intense, weird art form that went against a lot of the norms and, you know, forged its own path, which second wave of black metal, you, you look at, like, the... Dark Friends transition between their first and second album. That that is totally forging their own path, like committing kind of like we're almost committing commercial suicide by just freaking their record label out with like this incredible direction change. Fortunately it paid off for the band and you know, the rest is history. But the whole idea of early black metal was to be doing something different, to be forging new ground. So many would argue the following um, 11 Psy albums are not strictly black metal albums. I would argue they are all well and truly, whatever musical influences they take, they are all black metal albums because they all follow the black metal ethos of, of finding your own sound, not being, you know, not following everyone else. Like, the, the fact black metal, especially like sort of, you know, mid-2000s kind of homogenized into one sound was was such a terrible thing that it was just such a such a stupid take on the genre to just directly copy what had gone before so i've always been forging their own path and doing something something unique and doing something that just truly they wanted to do which i i think is so incredibly admirable um I mentioned before sort of taking influence uh, in places possibly from records like into pandemonium and and if only Celtic Frost had kept forging their own path rather than, you know, attempting to become commercial at one point, they would have... No, they would have been more fondly remembered. Who knows whether they would have just immediately disappeared after that, though. I guess maybe Cold Lake was necessary to keep keep that band alive. But yeah, I would just argue that, although, yes, they definitely go into the avant-garde territories, they, you know, they embrace a lot of elements that are not your most traditional um, black metal kind of thing... Psy will always be a black metal band because that is the core of their sound. They they will always have some of those scream vocals in there, some of those kind of certain kind of riffs. However many other layers they kind of bring around that, that's just their take on black metal, and it's still it's still very much that genre. So this album was recorded with exactly the same lineup as uh, Scorn Defeat two years prior, but it's quite clear immediately that. Um, Everyone's grown as musicians in the in the intervening time. Like the drumming is tighter, the guitar work is tighter, the the keyboard work is infinitely more expansive and um, varied, and the, the 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 degree of extra keyboard sounds added on this album is absolutely huge. It's where I I think Psy would truly embrace that element of their sound. Like from this album onwards nearly every moment of side music would have some kind of keyboards over rather than it being occasional kind of interlude parts or or parts layered over like one out of the four riffs of a section. Something that's quite odd about this album structurally from completely different from the rest of the albums actually is it's six tracks long and the like the average track length is about nine minutes. Like Psy for the most part are not a long song band. Like a lot of the time, despite their kind of avant-gardeness, they um they they keep very kind of tight structures. Um, this this album like takes a lot more kind of um, dalliances and and it actually is is still in many places quite slow. Like uh, there is obviously blasting moments. It's it's still well and truly a black metal album in that regard. But there's a lot of longer slow passages. 
obviously they had to find a new record label and this one was put out on uh, originally on cacophonous records uh, yeah infidel art like it improves a lot on the debut for me like uh, they get a cover right. They've gone for a kind of um, a more historical image of a it's kind of a samurai figure um, in this kind of snowy landscape. It's yeah, like it's got a very very over the top color palette. A lot of like blues, reds, and whites, kind of uh, slightly out there look for a black metal band. But then you know maybe maybe a good sign of. Um, of the difference you're going to get inside the, the package of this album. And as I say, what was immediately obvious is that the band is embracing that kind of, like, all those ideas of the keyboards, the sound. Um, the the opening track, Izuna, um, starts off kind of heavy, but in the second half, it, like, delves fully into the territories of, like, 70s prog rock with some of the, the piano leads. Track 2, The Zombie Terror, is particularly bizarre because it has the name The Zombie Terror, so I haven't mentioned it so much up to now, but uh, Mirai takes a massive influence from bands like Impetigo and uh, Necrophagia, so that really early proto-death metal sound. And often there is some of those kind of proto-death metal riffs appear in, in their music. Um, I actually even joined Necrophagia briefly in their sort of later tail end of their career. And so with a song called The Zombie Terror, I'm fully expecting some, like, Impetigo, disorganised style uh, riffs. And we get a bit of that at the start. But the second half of this song is this um, this massive melodic piece with, with all these beautiful piano lines and sort of melodic guitars. It, it Like, yeah, this over the course of this ten-minute track, the second half goes off into some absolutely bizarre territories the the following track desolation as well continues that trend of throwing one track in the album that's very much outside the kind of core sound of it like like we had with the previous album there, there was the one track where it was primarily like a keyboard driven song this has a lot of that but there's far more kind of like classical bombast to it and then when the guitars come in a couple of minutes in it, it becomes this like massive um really entertaining track also i think is it this one um the no no this is the following track the last elegy which is um <laughs> the last elegy which has this real kind of theatrical kind of keyboards to it we have the first what i call the first like true clean vocals for the band scorn defeat had some stuff that was kind of clean but it was more almost like spoken wordy we have mariah actually doing some proper singing on this one like going for this kind of lower epic um kind of voice and it has this very I kind of like regal sense to it. This track, there's there's something there's a lot of pomp to it, and those clean vocals play perfectly into it. And as you can tell from those descriptions, this is where we we kind of we kind of are with with Psy at this period. That um, there is so many sounds outside what was was initially kind of hinted at with their demos and first releases. They they they've definitely start embracing a lot of other influences like and uh, like i i don't know this for sure but 
I, I, it would be really amazed if Mariah wasn't taking a massive influence from sort of classical music at this point. There seems to be so many of that style of melodies working its way into his keyboard playing. All that being said, we do get some extreme metal fury in some places. Uh, track 5, Suicidogenic, starts off with with two minutes of kind of epic building keyboards and nothing else. And then a kind of drum roll comes in and we get like three minutes of an absolutely kind of like thrashing rager of a track complete with dive bomb solos. Like all of it as well is like barely contained by the mix because so much has been put into making like the clean melodic parts kind of shine through the drums and bass on this album and even some of the rhythm guitar it's pretty muddy and down like sort of down into this like kind of swampy sound underneath the rest of the album but yeah don't don't um don't worry there is still those moments like this where we get something that's just properly brutal for me this album is is really fun but it's quite flawed you can tell it's still that point where the band are playing with how to make all these elements gel together i'd say like a lot of bands with very good keyboard players actually do this thing where they'll have an album early on where they waste too much time with these melodic sort of interludes or build-ups and you know, I find it almost feels like padding, and it's something so I would very quickly get the hang of um, cutting down these sections to just give you the sort of the meat of the sound they're going for. Like they don't need to spend quite this time on on building atmosphere. It works really well for this, but this album does still feel like a very proto version of their sound. As I say, I thoroughly enjoy it, but for me, it, it certainly wouldn't be my like advised start point on on the band's discography there there's too many sort of flaws of recording and the songwriting you know could be a little bit more condensed there there's there's a little bit of fat on this album but for the sheer level of ambition and weirdness like this album coming out in 95 like you know this this is just where the the idea of sort of avant-garde black metal is appearing and these guys are are kind of right on the forefront of that the only bands that are kind of like ahead of them are i guess stuff like master's hammer who are still a bit more normal at this point in time but yeah they this this is for for the place in time it's pretty incredible but it certainly has dated ever so slightly
so the band's next release would be in 1997, The Eastern Forces of Evil Live 92-96. to There's a collection of live tracks, which are primarily Venom covers, two early death covers, and then I think, uh, like, four original tracks. So I'm not going to dwell on that one too much. It's a cool release, but um, yeah, we're going to move next on to the next studio release because there's probably too many uh, <laughs> studio albums to focus too much on the live ones. Um, this one... Very short, strictly an EP, Ghastly Funeral Theatre from 1997, same year, um, has essentially four proper tracks, an intro and an outro, but it is so much a show of, like, this is the one where I think a lot of their later sound would be established, even if it is a bit like, here's this sound and then here's this sound, rather than being truly blended together. So after the... Um, uh, Nice melodic intro of Sushiki. We get um, Shingon Tachikawa, um, which starts off kind of heavy, like starts off kind of scorn defeat style riffing for the first half. But then we get some clean vocals at about three minutes in, and suddenly it's it's more beautiful melodic prog. I believe the first use of saxophone comes in, and that saxophone gives gives way to a, a absolutely brilliant kind of melodic heavy metal bit of lead guitar playing uh from sunichi just really good stuff um and then back into more melodic prog with marai doing these these brilliant kind of um massive clean vocals over the top of it once again two years on from the previous release everyone is getting tighter as musicians uh satoshi's drumming sounds better and better um especially on the kind of slower stuff which is this album kind of um trades on quite a bit more the um the next track things go very odd on uh domain seaman which uh no idea what that name's all about starts off in a kind of more melodic place and then we get this just horrific horror movie soundscape of these like massive stabbing keyboard noises like this section is actually kind of painful to listen to if you've got like decent headphones turned up at a reasonable volume and like there's a minute of this which will be quite kind of um quite formative for where where their sound will be going on the next few albums and then that gives way to just full-blown uh, like venom worship Imuata, the, the next track, is a three-minute instrumental, which I can only describe as just a classical, like, keyboard-slash-piano piece. It's it's really nice, but it's just, yeah, just sort of sat in the middle of this this extreme metal album as a piece of just essentially classical music. And then, then we get one more kind of proper song, and that sort of brings us to the finish. The cover, very much uh, in the vein of Infinite Art again, is another, um, another kind of Japanese... Um, like more traditional artwork it looks a bit more demonic than the previous one though i feel it it fits the tone a bit more the color palette as well is like sort of dark blues and purples with size logo kind of in blood red over it something about it it just it looks a lot more black metal despite being outside that traditional black metal aesthetic whereas like infidel art i i just i couldn't tell you what genre that would have been had i not already known the band this I might have been able to guess. Um, and overall, recording's a bit better. Just just the band are clearly kind of growing with this. Like, the this this album, I, I sorry, this EP, I really love start to finish, barring the kind of um, ear-bleeding noises in the, in the middle of uh, Dom, 
Deman. Like that is um, that bit is 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 intense. But uh, I think maybe maybe hitting its desired effect. Like yeah, this this is the first point where. For, for me, I'm like this. This is an essential one to pick up. I guess Scorn Defeat is also also kind of essential for its kind of point in history. It's just it's not my favourite. But yeah, Ghastly Funeral Theatre. Things are getting really impressive at this stage. Now, 1997 was a seriously busy year for the band. Um, they also put out their fourth album, oh no, third proper album, Hail Horror Hail, um, which for me is the point where Sire just suddenly the the fucking best. Like this is this is where the band have really found exactly what makes them unique and brilliant. Um, so we talked about with the previous two releases bringing all these different influences into their sound. Hail Horror Hail is where they find a way to just put all these influences in one song and make it flow. If we look like a track like 4249 on this, it has got in rapid succession the moments of venom worship, the moments of like classical influence stuff, like the amazing kind of lead guitar work all this kind of melded into one coherent song, throwing even, like, elements of, like, sort of jazz at it. Something else that's, like, very notable that they start doing on this album, which would remain a staple, more or less, their sound from this point on, is throwing in moments like the first portion and final portion of the, the track 12, Souls, where there is also elements of very horror movie soundtrack-type 
thing. So less the classical and more that kind of sequence of random unsettling noises. I'm sure random is an unfair description, but but uses of very kind of um, like out there sounds, like lots of odd soundscapey stuff, primarily there to um, uh, unsettle. Uh, apparently, a big influence was taken on this album from the German composer Karl-Heinz Stockenhausen, who I know very little about, but according to Google's quick description, is um, uh, widely acknowledged by critics as one of the most important and controversial composers of his time. So, <laughs> you know, like that sort of plays into it. But yeah, I'm, I'm assuming the influence from this guy is this kind of sort of soundscapey stuff. I, I've heard in an interview the band describe the album as a horror movie without pictures. But what is interesting about that description is you, you kind of, from that description, you're expecting horrific horror throughout. But the way Hail Horror Hail works is we go back and forth between moments of like real catchiness the title track has some amazing moments of like like big um bombastic choruses and like like kind of real soaring guitar and keyboard melodies invitation to die delves into almost i guess like disco music with a weird kind of esoteric edge to it complete with uh and Mirai programming percussion for it, so it's it hasn't got a real drum on his track, it's all just his kind of keyboards with those properly, like, yeah, kind of early 80s sort of disco kind of sounds to them. But we get moments like The Dead Sing is more in line with that sort of slightly kind of, um, I guess Doomy's unfair, but just the slow, scary kind of sound they did a lot of in their earlier releases with, you know, nothing massively technical or or complex, but just lots of slightly unsettling sounds. And then we get tracks towards the end, like uh, Curse of Exagni, which just has uh, uh, Sinichi just shredding like absolutely crazy on this one. Um, like, yeah, there's like a, a two-minute-long lead guitar passage, which is pure kind of unbridled, aggressive shred over like really fast drumming. Another thing we get with this album, which I don't think we've had so much before, is the band members start crediting themselves with just a ridiculous line of um, of instruments played. So rather than Mirai on vocals, keyboards, and bass, it's vocals, bass, keyboards, piano, organ, vocoder, samples, drum programming, and effects. And Satoshi is credited with drums, percussion, tambourine, hand claps, triangle, uh, guerrero, and a vibra-slaps. Uh, Vibra slaps? <laughs> I assume so. No idea what kind of a lot of that is. But like, yeah, say so stuff like there is some, I think it's in 420, uh, sorry, 4249. There is these like kind of very melodic vocoder vocals, like not quite the cynic style. They're kind of more poppy than that. Uh, yeah, so they, they are playing around with so many kind of interesting weird elements and it's it's that idea of just throwing every cool idea they have at this completely you know complete with that that kind of disco-y interlude of invitation to die is just yeah so kind of out there in their sound um this album is flawed in its production i'd say one thing i quite like about this uh Sinichi is also credited with bass in this and it 
unlike the previous two releases, the base is actually doing something interesting all the time and has kind of higher position in the mix with kind of this kind of quite nice, like, uh, gnarly distortion tone on it. Problem is, the drums sound horrible on this. The nicest drums sound on the album are that, that moment of programming, the actual kind of recording of them. I don't know what's wrong with them, but I, do, I really hate the drum sound on this album. And just, just as a mix overall, like, the, the kind of... The mix doesn't capture the incredible ambition of this release. It, it is it is amazing on that front what they they've kind of pulled off this sort of absolute genre melding nightmare, and they keep that horoscope together by the album being so unpredictable. As I say, even uh, even in its more melodic moments, it's sort of shifting and changing so fast it constantly leaves you on foot like like wrong footed, but. What they really nail is the transitions, and this is what Psy, I think, have down, and why, why unlike some bands who attempt similar, it's not just obnoxious uh, noise. So I enjoy acts like Igor, but with Igor, it is just like, just kind of nonsensically one thing after another. With Psy, once you get used to their kind of sound, these transitions are perfectly logical. It's just not what you're used to. There is no... There is nothing sort of, I'd say, musically wrong with a lot of them. There's nothing kind of, you know, sort of go, flying in the face of things beyond, oh, that's not the instrument I would expect them to go for there. That's an odd choice of keyboard tone to follow up that kind of previous melody. It's in, then, like, for a lot of the time, they're not doing stuff that's, like, hugely discordant, except for obviously in those kind of um, soundscapey passages. But, yeah, I, I just really like that kind of... Um, the style of transition they go for on a lot of stuff. Another great thing about this album, I really like the cover of it. It's um, this very washed out picture. Um, it's kind of hard to tell what's going on, but it it definitely has a really creepy vibe to it. There's something about the covers of this album I just find, yeah, just a little unsettling, which fits uh, fits very nicely with the themes. I think this is the f where I definitely say this is a solid start point for the band. Like if you if you're new to them and are looking to kind of work out what they're about, Hail Horror Hail definitely a decent start point. There'll be a lot more coming. There's you know a good few other albums I, I would recommend and similarly is like would be an acceptable first listen. But yeah, this is definitely one where this will give you a good idea of what the band are gonna be about from this point onwards. And it's it's pretty well executed if you can excuse that slightly rough recording.
brings us to um, 1999's scenario for Dread Dreams. So you see, like, Sai have got an incredible kind of work ethic at this point, happily putting out an album every two years with plenty of kind of in-between ones, although I guess there's been, like, there's a row now of a couple albums in a row, but they are very much, like, putting out a whole heap of new material quite rapidly and, you know, often involve, evolving a lot in that time. The kind of change of the sound between Scorn Defeat and Hail Horror Hail is pretty massive. Scenario 4 I have issue with. It's the one where, for me, it sits awkwardly between two vastly superior albums and doesn't sort of doesn't evolve the sound as much and kind of there is a resulting sort of there's an awkwardness about this album. Some of the new ideas in it are are just not the best ideas Sai have ever had. It starts strongly with Diabolic Suicide, but then we get into Infernal Cries, there becomes the, the real obvious problem of the album. Um, this is apparent in, in, in the track In the Mind of a Lunatic as well. Of um, There's too much like old heavy metal worship in, in this to me. And by old heavy metal, I'm talking that, that kind of like early 80s kind of hard rock slash heavy metal sound. There's a lot of moments like this. Um, and it just... I know, like, a lot of these songs just come off as dull. Infernal Cries particularly drags. In the Mind of a Lunatic is amazing because the first two minutes I genuinely can't stand. And then the second two minutes where, like, the clean vocals, acoustic guitars, keyboards, all this stuff kicks in. Absolutely brilliant. But then the song does end, just suddenly cuts to black and moves on to the next track as if the CD just skipped. Which is another issue of the album. The transitions between a lot of the songs on this are absolutely horrible. I don't know what's going on. Although, so interestingly, like, um, I think this is the case. Yeah, I have a remaster of it. And uh, and the tracks are in a different order on the remaster to the original. Now, I don't know whether this is, maybe I've got it off some, like, like maybe the version I've got is a dodgy version of it. But yeah, like the slightly different ordering of tracks. I don't think that would save things. Like that in the mind, mind of a lunatic into Severed Ways transition doesn't make any sense but um yeah it's a bit odd the remaster is quite nice in terms of like the overall sound of it uh, i i enjoy much like the the scorn defeat uh remaster I, I think i think that really works i think the album's got a good tone to it there's a lot that sounds very impressive um there's much of the much of the same sort of gradual evolution and all the musicians playing they're just becoming quite kind of masterful at this point particularly uh Mirai's kind of um, keyboard work is just getting more and more kind of complex and over the top, and that side of it's really good. But there is just a lot of um, a lot of awkwardness, and it's got some of the problems that they'd sort of got over from the um, infidel art era of of sticking like two minute keyboard intros on songs that just don't need them, like sort of that that, that almost feels like a slightly padded runtime. There's some fun stuff about this album. Um, First time they have a couple of guest vocalists on. They have uh, uh, kind of two additional vocalists, uh, Chikuno adding some kind of female vocals to a couple of the more melodic moments. Particularly great effect in that first song. And then uh, Damien Montgomery of um, Ritual Carnage adds some, adds some vocals in there as well. Also, guest lyricists for half the album. Uh, we have we have some quite, uh, quite impressive uh, people here. So... David Montgomery writes lyrics for, I believe, the two tracks he does vocals on. Um, Killjoy of Necrophagia, uh, R.I.P., uh, 
Add some lyrics to track six and track five. It's written by uh, King Fowley of Deceased fame, which is, you know, some pretty high caliber uh, people on it. Cover of the album's pretty cool as well, and that can probably be put down to uh, it being a Joe Petanago piece, uh, the guy who did most famously did most the um, most of the Motorhead covers. So, like, that side of it's really decent. As I say, the problem with this album is it's got great moments, but it's just... It's, it's got a bad kind of... Uh, it's too many bad transitions that take me out of it, and too many moments that are just a little bit boring. Like... This would be an incredible EP. There's a good half hour in here. I just, I know there's something weird about the editing and songwriting, and it's just, just not my favourite of that. That's coming off overly harsh. I mean, he's, it's still a good album, but I think when, when I have been doing the research for this and listening to all twelve, this is the one I've been sort of least infused about, sort of going back to and uh, revisiting multiple times. It's, it, as I say, it has some really, really good moments. That is not an edit I've done there. See what I mean about the song? It just, just cuts to nothing. I've, I've no idea. Maybe the version I've got of it's wrong. Who knows? But you see what I mean about like the, the hard rock heavy metal riffs? Like, like the final kind of riff of that track is is full-blown Finn Lizzy worship. <laughs> okay, so this brings us to the first album of theirs that I sort of knew really well ahead of starting the research for this. We're the, the following sort of run and but basically most of the next episode is going to be all the stuff I'm well versed on. So you saw how much I went on about the stuff that I didn't know that well. Yeah, this is going to get really long. I will try my best to, uh, to be a little concise. So keeping up with their trend of putting out an album every two years, 2001 brings us Imaginary Sonescape, um, their 
fifth album, uh, which is in, like this is the point where I, I just I cannot fault them. This album is so so good. Um, it is truly something else. I, actually, it took a lot of uh, Dread Dreams, the previous album, a lot of that kind of more rock um, and psychedelic inspired stuff, and just ran with it, and it worked. In this one. Oh god, this 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 album is so brilliant on this front. So you know you're into into a different sound from the band with the opening of Corpse Cry Angel Fall, where it's all these bright melodies. Like it's still very it's still very rocking. It's still got like a lot of the heavy guitar work, but it's so wonderfully melodic and it's very reminiscent of like a lot of seventies prog in places. Uh, Sinichi's lead guitaring is is just better than ever. The solo he throws into this song about two minutes in. Ah, oh, it's just perfection. All the kind of the keyboard leads sound absolutely amazing. Like the vocals have a nice sort of they're still scream primarily for the song, but it's such a kind of melodic, catchy quality to them. Ah, oh, it's, it, it's wonderful, but still has that side kind of complex, bizarre structure. And then like the final sort of minute to it is a cut to kind of strange, terrifying, soundscapey stuff with this kind of sort of pouring rain kind of noise over these harsh kind of keyboards. But then that brings us into the Scarlet Dream, which is one of the ones we'll most hear um, into, like, elements of Mirai playing around the vocals using, like, heavily, like, deepened vocoder vocals, playing off against his screams, playing off against his cleans, playing off against the clean female vocalist from the previous album, Chikunu, comes back for two tracks on this. Um, There's even a choir added later in the album as, as additional guests. Um, and like these these massive back and forths over this this quite strange piece. There's a lot of like ambient electronic elements thrown in between the more kind of like thrashy riffing and like bits of lead guitar like really interesting track i remember this um this album as a whole actually was one that did take me a bit of time to get my head around this was yeah i think like third or fourth song i got and on first listen i was a bit perplexed but given given time to kind of really soak up these songs i i'm just totally in love with it at this stage as the album progresses we we're just constantly given um more strange ideas they're like no track follows logically on from the next but it doesn't feel it doesn't feel kind of chopping or strange like that it's just each song is going to be a new strange experience nietzschean conspiracy is like this kind of more um epic kind of industrial piece very melancholic in places with lyrics written by faust kind of a um of of emperor like early emperor fame showing mariah's kind of love of that scene um and yeah it has this very strange somber vibe but then we get to to a sunset song which is this this wonderfully melodic piece like this real like really beautiful kind of almost poppy melodies in places the the album isn't totally kind of perfect. There's some there's some oddities in it. Uh, the track voices I like, which has these kind of um, this kind of like sort of text to speech type device voice talking throughout it. I 
I find it, find it unlistenable. That song drives me up the fucking wall. But um, you know, it, it's 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 like almost an eighty-minute-long album. This, so I I'm not gonna let that uh, that ruin my my sort of enjoyment for it. And actually, after after Voices, sort of midpoint of the album, we get into an amazing run of songs. The um, Ecstatic Transformation and Born Condemned Criminal are two of the really catchy kind of. Um, more, more kind of black metal-y moments of this album. This album never really gets too kind of um, too venom worship, but I'd say a moment like Born Condemned Criminal is probably about as close as it comes. Then we have sort of towards the end of the album the epic Slaughter Garden Suite in its uh, eleven-minute-long glory. One of the rare kind of very long tracks from the like sort of later period sigh which has it just has so much going on in it it moves from a long kind of opening passage of this more kind of horror soundscapey noise to suddenly giving way to this really kind of over the top like 70s synth bit with um wonderful guitar and keyboard leads thrown over more of that like brilliant melodic catchiness but then slips back into kind of more soundscapey stuff and then there's more over the top leads like huge amounts of amazing keyboard solos and something i particularly like about mariah in this era is he will throw hundreds of different um keyboard tones like he doesn't find his lead tone he will use a different keyboard lead tone every time he does a lead like that he's playing around with so many different bits of like old and new technology once again we're kind of um credited with his like he's credited with multiple things of keyboards piano organ mini moog uh mellotron samples and programming so that gives you a kind of hint of of the stuff he's sort of playing with um satoshi is really playing to his skill set on this album as well as i say it doesn't descend into kind of more what you would expect from black metal like he's doing a lot of more simplistic kind of rock beats and as such just sounds fantastically tight um mariah's back is the full vocal uh, full bass player for this i should say and the bass has a really nice groove to it it's far again far more rocky it's not like that distorted tone we had on the, the previous two albums and sunichi just having a fantastic time with his leads like this is this is some of like the kind of tightest writing of his stuff. He's not he's not doing much of like on most of the previous albums. Half his leads have been these kind of like real nasty like Slayer worship kind of um, you know essentially slightly out of tune shredding, but you know on purpose. But this album doesn't play around with any of that. This is this is melodic uh, kind of brilliant flashy prog rock guitar throughout. It's an album for prog rock fans, and you can tell the band were going for that. Like, they totally changed their image from these years of of costumes and flames. The the pictures of the band that go along with this album are them and these kind of like each member superimposed over a starlit sky background, but like sitting on a pile of flowers um, <laughs> in. Uh, satoshi's case like relaxing on the floor or like on a bed of flowers <laughs> over this starscape mirai is stood surrounded by a ring of 10 keyboards or various keyed instruments which just feels this, this is exactly the nature of this album it's it's 
it's really trippy and weird, but if you kind of give give it time to get into it, it it's, it's an absolutely wonderful release. The The cover art fits so well as well, this um, really vibrant and confusing kind of lime green and orange picture, uh, provided by Stephen O'Malley, actually. I assume it's a kind of a reworking, again, of something traditional, but there's, there's definitely been a kind of like psychedelic edge thrown over it. Um... um and apparently as well, James Murphy remastered it. I believe, again, I'm listening to the remastered version, but I'm just going on, this is the CD version I've got of it and I've had for years. Um, I didn't know James Murphy did a lot of uh, remastering work. But yeah, it's, it sounds um, sounds really brilliant. Uh, like, there's there's flaws that you can tell it's a, an early 2000s kind of mix. But from this era, actually, of... This is, as I say, it's 2001, of this period where bands are kind of stepping away from, uh, in a lot of times, from their extreme roots and trying something different. This was certainly trying something different, but it felt like a logical progression from their last album. And there's, I don't know, I guess this is the point, as much as I went that round earlier about how their stuff is always always quite true and cult in its in its own way, its own uniqueness and dogged determination. Um maybe imaginary uh some escapes is is the point where that's not so true. This is this really is their progressive rock album. But it's you know, it's still a metallic album. This album would still be too much for your average prog rock fan. I think they they wouldn't be able to deal with the with the, the kind of harsher vocals and the moments of, of more aggressive stuff, despite those kind of leanings. And also, honestly, for, I think for a lot of these people, like, all that soundscape stuff might be a bit too much. Like, this is... This probably still isn't the album to sort of show your dad who's really into Genesis. And yes, I'd say it's still a bit too much on that front. It's, a, it's still extreme in its own way. Uh, but yeah, um, this is probably where I'm going to leave the first half of um, of my my side review. You know, this is halfway through the discography, and I think ending on a real high for the uh, for the first half of the episode. I really hope I've managed to sell a few on you, a few of you on this band. I'll be back in sort of two weeks to do the the more later catalogue, which honestly is probably the more accessible end of their sound. So if you didn't find anything in this slot that quite worked for you. Don't give up hope. There's a lot of different ideas coming coming down the line. Um, my advice with this one is go away and listen to Scorn Defeat and this album, um, Imaginary Son Escapes. Like this is uh, this is the kind of those are the two real standout from the first era of their career, and I think this kind of um, shows the kind of journey the band went on from kind of you know spitting fire in capes to the point here where they're wearing sort of jeans and white t-shirts and cool sunglasses. So I mentioned at the start of this episode I was going to add something sort of small in at the end which was kind of unrelated to Sai. We did an episode ages ago on like metal books, me and Rob, um, I think a couple of years ago, which uh, so I've not done another episode on that because I think it is genuinely the least popular episode we've ever put out. But I recently read a metal book that's had a lot of um, a lot of buzz around it and I wanted to do a quick review of it. So many of you will be aware um, in the last few months uh, a book called 
Rotting Ways to Misery, A History of Finnish Death Metal was put out, written by Marcus Makonen and uh, Kim Stromsholm. So, throughout reading this book, I couldn't help but compare it to the History of Swedish Death Metal book by Daniel Ekeroff, both, you know, dealing with early years of a European scene, going through the demos to those those important full lengths, and dealing with the rise and fall of a popular genre over the early 90s. Like, the, it was really hard not to read this constantly thinking of the other, particularly as I've read that Swedish death metal book um, a couple of times. What I'd say about Rotting Ways in, in that regard is it is an amazing entry point to the genre. It covers um, in great detail all the key players with some fun kind of recording anecdotes and stories from that, that kind of scene of really young musicians. Something very interesting is correlating descriptions of where the sound came from. It seems to be like um, a lot of these albums were born of very young musicians building on the best of kind of the British and Swedish death metal scenes, combining that with like the kind of gloomy Finnish weather and creating that sound that we still like know and love and still terrifying kind of 30 years on from a lot of those early releases. Um, the issue I had with the book was the kind of format. And it, this is an unfair kind of criticism because I'm holding it up against a truly brilliant metal book, probably one of the best ever. And it unfortunately can't avoid that comparison. Um, the problem is the middle of the book drags a little because it has this, this kind of pattern of introduce a band, describe the process of evolution from their early demos to their excellent like super influential debut album and then almost invariably explain how the band fell apart or changed to playing kind of like more psychedelic rock or something very unrelated to that death metal scene um and actually it's kind of like in a way a bit disheartening because you're reading all these interviews where bands are just like oh yeah I don't really don't really like death metal anymore or oh, yeah, that's just what I was into as a kid it's the only kind of like real stretches away from this uh, with uh, interviews to say like Sentence or Amorphous where they kept doing something relatively extreme for the rest of their career or like I, I believe the one with a drum, uh, lick is, is quite um, they're all quite enthusiastic about death metal still and in some ways, that's not really a criticism on the writing. This is what happened. That that's where those bands went. But it's it's interesting that the Finnish death metal kind of story just sort of dies in nineteen ninety three. So you have this kind of like nineteen ninety to nineteen ninety three, this amazing kind of history of a scene, and it just sort of stops. And at least from the way the the book's written the kind of rise of mellow death and the rise of black metal seem quite separate from that, whereas with the Swedish death metal book, you could see those kind of as a direct kind of following on, so it never felt so much like an end point. Some of the band interviews in it are fantastic. Um, there's others where you can tell like they were less interested in being there. Uh, the four pages on Ferragothon are a bit weird like the the kind of i think they're interviewing the singer and you can tell like he's not interested in going to um too many details about that album which is a shame because that's one of the ones i was quite excited to hear about in that book i mean but seeing the chapter they had a chapter on kind of one of the real luminaries one of the really early funeral doom bands i was expecting a bit more but like uh the sentenced uh Demilic, uh 
Zizma, those are all really inter- like interesting interviews and they you know dug up a lot of great information about those bands. I think what really started getting on my nerves about the book as it went on was that structure though of like just it being band after band after band rather than a continuing sort of narrative of how the scene grew and and maybe this is the nature of the Finnish scene being more spread out around the country but with the Swedish death metal one you kind of see this whole thing of how uh like areas of Stockholm would find a way to do metal and by virtue of finding that space like bands would sort of grow out of that and become more and more uh professional and there's less of that and there's less of the kind of madness of that book where you saw like you know a very confused immolation drinking in a railway station surrounded by 15 year olds because they have no pubs or bars to go into it's uh yeah there's there's nothing much in this book explaining how a bunch of young bands primarily featuring kids under the legal drinking age were able to book and organize gigs there's plenty of mention of gigs but no real mention of how they happened whereas this is a major thread in the uh the swedish death metal book and and it's sort of the the thread that was really interesting me i was like how is the kind of promotion of this scene working and maybe, maybe they, again, there's less information about that because, let's be honest, the Finnish scene was less famous than the Swedish scene. Like, it's something that's really been discovered in in the last ten years. It's come to a like high, much higher level of popularity than it ever was when it was um, it was going at the time. And, and don't don't take this really too harshly. I don't. It was by no means a bad book. Um, the issue is, I. I just couldn't stop comparing it to one of my favourite books. And as you know in this review, I keep doing that too. Um, I think some of the some of the thing is the the Finnish scene doesn't have quite as interesting a story. Um it just it is this very kind of short burst of an amazing thing happened and then just stops. But this I say one thing Rotting Waste of Misery does really well is it brings together in the kind of the final kind of 30, 40 pages, it sort of really picks things up, where it covers um, why artists involved at the time kind of think the scene died and then goes into the bands who have, like, resurrected it years later. That's, like, honestly, that's the great bit. I say, like, around page 200, I was a bit, like, finding it a bit of a slog, but that last, that last sort of run of, like... 30 to 50 pages i was like oh that's this actually this kind of summary of of kind of what went wrong and then but then what it later bred was kind of amazing that actually was kind of quite uplifting in its own way one interesting takeaway i had and uh, and i'm sure this is a totally unfair generalization but what was quite interesting with the uh, a big part of that swedish death metal story was the government funded um you know young people having like a day or two of studio time to record all those demos so there was this this real kind of life in the scene where everyone who put time into into just getting a band working could get something out could put out some kind of demo and although yes they did kind of follow a formula to a large extent it was just very interesting to have so much of a record of a scene whereas in finland the massive problem, the, the kind of the end of the story of about 30 to 40% of the bands in there is they still had national service at this point in Finland. I don't think they do anymore. But when any band turned about 18, 
a couple of them had to go off to join the army. Band went on a hiatus for a year. The enthusiasm was gone. Another amazing band totally, totally fizzled out. And I think in many ways, this is why, like, Sweden kind of ends up being, like, just on the map globally is, like, you know, one of the most important places for extremists in the world. Whereas that's only true in Finland now with the rise of its kind of melodic death metal and black metal scenes that would follow this. Its, its death metal scene wasn't really put in the work in that regard, whereas I do think Sweden's death metal scene is what started it off as it being seen as this kind of mecca of, of metal worldwide. The one thing, actually, that I sort of touched on earlier is the book never explains the connection, or it implies there isn't one to many senses, because, it, because it's just not there. It, anyone in the book is... The connection between its early brutal death metal scene and the huge, huge melodic death metal scene that that would follow it, like there's like a paragraph mentioning a few melodic death metal bands. But for example, it, it feels weird in a book about the history of Finnish death metal to not have, say, an act like Children of Bodom name checked even once anywhere that they may have, I don't know, taken sort of influence from this this scene or, or like any of those kind of like huge melodic acts they have like must have had some relation to this scene i don't know maybe maybe not maybe maybe this is it is perfectly logical that scene just stopped and the melody scene is unrelated and that's the kind of implication the book gave me i'd say rotting waste of misery is well worth your time reading it is a really enjoyable um read especially if you're somebody you know if you really like bands like demigod and convulse there is a load about them in there there is definitely details of their stories you'll never have heard um you're, you're guaranteed to find a load of bands you haven't heard of as well like i got uh post reading this got really into the band unholy um especially their debut album absolutely kind of incredible release and you know it is great for filling in those gaps of, of stuff you missed i guess the difference is like when I was reading, say, the Swedish Death Metal or Choosing Death, there was just so many more bands covered. There was obviously more to kind of um, digest around it, whereas with with Rotting Ways, like, I guess... And some of this may be, the, may, may be me reading it so many years apart. Like, I, I read the Swedish Death Metal book in 2008 when it came out. I was still a teenager and obviously hadn't heard a lot of those bands like stuff like Tiamat and Edge of Sanity were new to me when I read this whereas you know reading this book in in 2021 like stuff like Convulse and Demigod Sentenced I, I know Inside Out but had I had this um a bit younger like, that totally wouldn't have been the case so yeah don't don't take this too harshly I I, I do think it's, it is a really decent book it is just not on the kind of upper echelons of um of the kind of those metal books it's a bit yeah a, a bit structurally weird but it gave me a load of information on bands i wouldn't have had any i wouldn't have had otherwise so that's really fantastic and shining a light on that scene that i know is now starting to really get its dues but a scene that was largely overlooked for the longest time okay well that, that's gonna do it for this episode you'll have to let me know if if, if uh, me covering these books is remotely interesting there's um there's, there's a fair amount of metal books I've picked up recently that I'm going to be working through over the next year, so 
I'll probably be dropping in the odd book review every so often. I, I mean, they're way harder to do than music reviews because they're way longer and they take ages to get through. But um, if, if I find some really good ones, I'll, I'll, I'll definitely mention them again. Uh, this will be a bit of a weird transition because I'm going to leave you with some fantastic prog rock, uh, courtesy of Sai's uh, Imaginary Sun Escapes uh, album. But that's just, just you know primer ready for for part two i hope size of interest to you as well i desperately want to get people into that band they're they're a, a huge love of mine but i realize maybe a step too avant-garde for most but yeah what a, like if you do do enjoy any of this please uh, get in touch you can you can hit me up on facebook just search for phil's breakfast metal on twitter at breakfast metal or phil's breakfast metal at gmail.com if you you want to get in touch and write like kind of a a longer message via email. Thanks a lot for listening.